Blog Talk Radio. to another exciting edition of Rundgren Radio. Tonight is Quarantined Episode 6, and we've got a guest host tonight. We've got Tom Jennings joining us, and we will later on, just in a little bit, uh, be running an interview that Tom did with Bunny Carlos from Cheap Trick fame. So we got we got some things to talk about first, but we'll get uh, to that interview real soon, all right? Tom, do I have you on the line? I sure hope so. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. How are you tonight? I am fantastic. We're, uh, we're appropriately socially distanced. I believe it's 1,417 miles apart, so uh, it's nice to see you at a more than arm's length. <laughs> I'm waving at you right now through the airwaves. <laughs> So, so you uh, graciously stepped in tonight for Doug, who is taking a little vacay, uh, as best as you can in this crazy world. Um, but I, I want to ask you a couple of things because I'm very curious. You have started dipping your toe into the land of comedy, right? Yes. Yeah, I started doing some open mic stand-up and just had my first, you know, moderately paid gig right before the quarantine. So I think it was about July I finally got up the nerve to do it, and I've been pretty consistent as far as hitting the open mics and writing material and all that kind of stuff. So it's it's been a lot of fun. It's it's very, very challenging. It, it's certainly a lot harder than it than it looks. Really? So it's a little scary getting up there? I've I've never really had a problem as far as getting up in front of people. I mean, you know me long enough to know that I'm a very extroverted person and teacher is my day job, so I'm kind of used to standing and talking in front of people. Uh, the problem is is that, you know, you, you really are expected to come up with some original material. I mean, it's not like a musician where you can choose between doing a cover song or doing an original song. I mean, the expectation is you're going to come up with original material, and you know, then it's finding that common ground where things that other people are going to find funny and, and you know, the, the trial and the error. And, you know, I've had nights where I've literally stood in front of the uh, group and told what I thought was my best material, and it was like crickets. And then I've had other nights where I felt really lousy about the material, and everybody laughed. So it's a, it's a weird science, to put it mildly. My my ultimate goal and dream is, in all honesty, is to someday do like about a five to seven minute bit on uh, Todd Rundgren fans because I think they're probably the only group that could appreciate it, you know, at a Rundgren radio event. So I'll, I'll plant that seed with you now, Mel, and maybe we'll be able to make that happen. Okay. Okay. Well, you know, hopefully we'll be having more gatherings and hopefully, you know, pretty soon. But um, yeah, the seed is planted, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Great. I've got a, just a few announcements, and then we'll um, 
ask you a little bit about your interview with Bunny Carlos. Uh, hey, Rundgren fans out there, as you know, Jesse Gress is fighting a fighting a very hard battle right now, and uh, there's a GoFundMe page set up for Jesse. Uh, give what you can, if you can. Uh, if not, please, you know, send it up in the prayers to whoever you pray to that uh, he can see the light of day, you know, coming real soon, all right? So go to the Jesse Gress GoFundMe page, and it's real easy. I actually did it. I know last night I admitted that I kept forgetting to do it, but I did it today, so so let's all get behind Jesse, all right? Uh, ToddStore.com is still open for business, so go and visit and get yourself a shirt or a sticker or something. Chasm Sultan also has some merchandise, so go to ChasmSultan.com, and you'll find a link to Merch Truck, and you can get one of those groovy, cool T-shirts that uh, went along with the Chasm Sultan's Utopia tour that kind of got cut short this last month. So um, support the artists, all right? And uh, one more announcement. Tomorrow night, uh, it's going to be a I think a pretty cool show. Luckily, Bruce Whetstone is sort of the leader of all this. We're going to have some of the campers from the uh, Todd Rundgren My Record Fantasy Camp that was held in 2011 in Sacramento. So uh, he's busy working on that show, and we'll have some live call-ins and, of course, questions and stuff like that. So make sure you tune in tomorrow, same channel, same time. Okay, so now let's get down to business, Tom. How did you go about even wanting to interview Bunny Carlos? How did you get it set up? I know Doug and I have tried for years to get that man's attention, and it's never worked out well for us. So tell us how you did it. It, It's kind of a weird story. So Doug texted me, I don't know, Wednesday or Thursday and asked if I'd be willing to do a show. And if I had any ideas for guests and I kicked around some names that I'd spoken to over the years, but I I really wanted to try to get somebody that I had never spoken to. And uh, Bunny Carlos sort of popped in my head because I knew of the connection with um, Sick Man of Europe and Naz. So I, and plus Todd Rungard produced next position, please. Now the case of Bunny Carlos, he's, he's not with Chief Turk anymore. So I wouldn't have to go through a publicist. Well, you know, that's one layer of stuff that I don't have to go through, and maybe I'll just, you know, take a shot. And we we have a mutual friend, and I was going to reach out to the mutual friend first, and then I just said, eh, the heck with it. I'll, I'll just try to contact him through his uh, fan Facebook page. So I sent a message and through the fan Facebook page, and he replied. And he says, yeah, I don't do interviews anymore. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well – I'm I'm really sorry to hear that. I said, um, you know, I've never interviewed a member of Cheap Trick, and it would be a real honor if I could. Um, it's for this Rungren Radio. I said, this is going to be the topics. We'll be talking about, you know, the uh, Sick Man of Europe stuff, the NAS stuff, and, and all that. And, you know, we might talk about some other stuff, but, you know, is that something that maybe you'd consider? So, I don't know. I waited maybe an hour, and he just messaged me back. He's like, well, just let me know when. And then he, he set the time for me. So, it was it was kind of a weird 
thing. You know what I mean? A lot of times, like you said, you chase an artist for years and you get no, no, no. I mean, one guy I've chased for over a decade is Tommy Shaw of Sticks. I've interviewed everybody in Sticks, but Tommy doesn't do interviews, but occasionally I'll see that he'll do one. And, but you got to kind of go through the publicist and, this was just a case where, I mean, the, the whole thing came together in, in a moment's notice. And he, just a, he was a great guy to talk to, man. It was just a, just a real I – I get a little fanboy in the interview because I'm a fan. I mean, he's, a, he's an incredible drummer. I mean, I, I put him up there in probably the top ten drummers that I've ever listened to as a, as a music consumer. Yeah. He's, he's a damn metronome, I tell you. Uh, you know. Yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So he was pretty easy to talk to. Uh, I think you'll see that the interview starts off a little choppy. You know, I, I, um, I kind of pride myself on, you know, at least doing a little bit of research before I talk to the subject, because I know from reading, I, I try to read like, like, you know, even though this is a part-time craft, it's still very important to me. So I always try to, to get, some kind of background information and I'll read other interviews and things like that, that other people have conducted. And you can sort of tell, and I'm not saying this to be a jerk or build myself up, but you can tell the difference between like a 21, 22 year old beat reporter interviewing Todd Rundgren and a Todd Rundgren fan interviewing Todd Rundgren. I mean, it's just, obviously they're better suited to interview people that are part of their generation. They have a little bit better knowledge of it. Just like I'm uncomfortable like I'd be uncomfortable interviewing Taylor Swift, for example, because I just don't know that much about her. And so when I, I think that they've, a lot of these classic rock artists have sort of run into that because a lot of the people that are doing the feature stuff for these casino shows and everything like that are younger. They don't really have a background on the band. So they ask the, you know, the canned questions like, how did you write? I want you to want me, you know, things like that. And um, so I started off with a couple of questions on some of his, more recent projects and you know they just that those the early questions you'll see just kind of bombed and then i just tried to make it a little bit more conversational because people like to talk i mean i'm talking right now but uh you know artists if, if it's a subject that they're interested about they'll get going i mean i've had interviews with todd where it's been 30 minutes and i've asked three questions <laughs> you know where he'll just if it's a question that he likes he'll go on about it and it's and it's pretty fun you know Oh, yeah, those are the best kind of interviews. Those are the kind Doug and I love. It's like if we know we've got a talker, we're like, yay, we can just sit back and listen now. Yeah, and I think with Bunny that, you know, it's a situation, again, kind of going back to the fact that he's not in Cheap Trick any longer. And, you know, that ship has sailed, and and I I didn't even touch on that subject because there's no point. You know, it's done. It's past history. The guy's a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee, so – in that respect, he's he's rock royalty, and I, I gave him the respect of not, you know, going through any of the, the, the stuff that's happened in recent years that probably burns everybody's craw. But, you know, I guess we as fans, you know, we kind of always like to think of those classic lineups as, as buddies and all that kind of stuff. But I think what was neat is that without the pressure of having to promote an album, to, you know, deal with gossip and any of that, he just was like a, he was like a guy you're sitting in a bar with having a beer who was telling you these great stories from when he first started playing music. And I mean, it's, it's real. I mean, I think it's really cool. Hopefully everybody agrees. Okay. Well, why don't we get down to it? Uh, let me tell everybody, this is a pre-recorded interview. So unfortunately you cannot 
you know, call in and ask Bunny any questions. Um, but you're more than welcome to call in after we run this interview, and you're you can ask Tom all all you want to, and he may even tell you about some stuff that he had to edit out. I'm just saying, not saying, just saying. But anyway, let's get down to it. This is Mr. Bun E. Carlos from Cheap Trick fame being interviewed by Tom Jennings. How are you surviving all this uh, coronavirus quarantine stuff out there in Illinois? Hunkering down. Hunkering down. Well, uh, yeah. um, I'm not sure how much time you have. I'll, uh, as, as I mentioned to you before, this is going to be for uh, Rundgren Radio, which is uh, obviously the focus is Tom Rundgren-related musicians, but we don't have to obviously talk about all things Todd Rundgren. So um, if you don't mind, maybe we'll start present and kind of move backwards a little bit. And mm-hmm. the last album you had was uh, Bunizuela, and then you've been working with uh, you had a couple of other projects that were sort of in the hopper as well. Um, Twisted Windows and Candy Gold. So, oh, Tinted Windows. Tinted Windows, yeah, sorry. I thought I said Tinted yeah. Windows. That's kind of... Uh... That's kind of put to sleep, kind of. It's been, this is the 11th year we haven't been together, so. Uh, T- Taylor Hansen tried to do something last year for it. Tried to get the, the boys back together, but uh, Adam Schlesinger was working on Broadway, and James Ehaw's out with the pumpkins, so nothing really happened. And Candy Gold is a side project I had with uh, John Stewart from Wilco and Nick and Rick, two guitar players from Chicago and in different bands and uh that's kinda John Stewart moved to Maine, <laughs> I think it was, and uh, we're just kinda sitting around, so yeah. Uh, so so we're, rock guys rock and roll guys that are sixty eight, that's kinda what you do, you know. <laughs> so so what are I mean, what are you doing? I mean I I think, you know, I haven't been to Rockford in a while. I went and actually was out there a few years ago and I think you were playing up out in some clubs and whatnot. I mean you're still you're still performing out there, correct? Yeah, like once a month, you know, I got a, a band we play on a Monday night, and uh, of course that's kind of hung up now for the foreseeable future. But yeah, basically I just buy and sell drums and uh, keep track of my business interests and things like that. Uh, now, I, if I've read correctly or remember correctly, you're also are, uh, an avid record collector, vinyl record collector. Is that still the case? Or I, mean, I think at some point you may have donated a bunch of it to a library or something like that? Well, I, I, that was CDs. I, I donated, uh, geez, a buckets of made or 900, I don't know, years ago, and I sorted through my CDs. And uh, and vinyl, I got rid of most of my vinyl about three years ago just because I ran out of room. <laughs> you know. So I, I, I guess if we could kind of hop into, uh, you know, again, a couple other quick topics before we get into the Todd Rundgren stuff. It's, mm-hmm. I mean, this year is going to be the, the 40th anniversary of of the assassination of uh, John Lennon. And I don't think a lot of people know that, that you and I believe it was just you and Rick actually performed on, uh, well, you weren't, you didn't actually wind up on the final copy of Double Fantasy, but you went out there for the Double Fantasy sessions and was probably one of the last group of performers that performed with John Lennon. I mean, looking back 40 years from now, is there anything that kind of strikes you or anything you haven't really talked about up to this point? Well, you know, when, when I was... When we got when we got asked to do it, you know, it was like obviously the coolest thing that ever happened, and uh, 
And since then, about once a year, I get a phone call from an author or somebody writing a book or, or doing a podcast, and they want to know about the John Lennon thing and all that. And, uh, you know, it's like one of the highlights of my life, working, you know, drumming on a track. And we, we did a track with the Oko, too, and uh, the stuff showed up. The, the John Lennon track showed up in 1998 on a Lennon box. And, uh, you know, it's it's one of the highlights of my career. Was, I'm glad it turned out. glad it still sounds good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, if I remember correctly, the Lennon track was I'm Losing You. I don't remember which was the Yoko Ono yeah. track. Well, that never got released. It was I'm Losing You was supposed to crossfade into I'm Moving On. And uh, that's that's where I got the, originally got the phone call from Jack Douglas. He said, uh, the drummer we're using, they can't get a feel. He can't get a feel on this song. And he goes, there's a song John wrote that the band can't get an arrangement. And I want you to come and play on it. And then... Uh, a few weeks later, uh, he goes, I got another call. I was like, bring Rick, too. And uh, uh, and then a few weeks later, we went and did it. You know, just it was an afternoon and an evening. And, uh, and uh, you know, it was <laughs> looking back on it, it's like, I can't believe I did that. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, but at the time, you know, we had a top five album. And, and John had been retired for five years. He didn't have a label. He was cutting a record and... Everybody's supposed to keep it secret because he was trying to. He was getting a record deal, and they didn't want one label fighting and you know knowing about it, and the others not and stuff, and it was all all that kind of junk, you know. And uh, so yeah, it was at the time it was like, oh cool, John Lennon wants us to cut a track, you know, that, that's pretty neat. And so yeah, it was just like, oh, wonder what's going to happen next week, you know. <laughs> we were headlining the L.A. Coliseum that summer, you know, and doing stuff like that, so. Cutting a track with John Lennon was just like, hey, I guess we're famous now. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> kind of goofy, you know. Yeah, I mean, it must have been, but I mean, it must have in some ways been a little bit more uh, poignant when he was murdered because you had literally just seen the guy and were such an important part of the whole recording process and the comeback for the, you know, the Double Fantasy album. You know, we, we cut the track and then the record came out about like two or three months later and then it went up the charts. And went back down the charts, and then then he got shot. You know, things happened pretty fast back then. And then then it, it had sold like a half a million records or whatever. Then it sold three million more records after that. Then then suddenly it was a big deal. But before that, you know, hey, we cut it. We we demoed a couple tracks with John and Yoko. You know, and they didn't make the record. Oh, that's nice. It was, you know, it was not a big deal. And then of course, it, after he was killed, in the next year we. We talked to people, you know, Jack and people that had been on the session that we'd worked with in the studio. Then they're like, "Yeah, he loved working with you guys, and he wanted wanted you guys to be in his band on the tour." <laughs> we heard all this stuff afterwards, you know, and I was like, "What?" You know, and that was all like, "Whoa!" And uh, but you know, I mean, that's just talk. So who knows what, you know, how it would have played out had he not been shot or something. But uh, you know. It, it turned out to be, of course, a much bigger thing than 40 years later than we ever thought it would be. Yeah. Well, it's got to be quite a compliment from a guy like Jack Douglas, too. I mean, I know he'd worked with you before, but he could have tapped into a lot of different drummers for that track. I mean, that's that says a lot about you know, your skill. Well, he, he, knew, he knew I knew how to keep time. <laughs> I think he knew I knew how to not get in the way of the singer. And uh, we, we knew how to put a song together, Cheap Trick, and we knew how to arrange stuff pretty good by then so part of it was you know it was losing losing you that john had an, a demo with him on acoustic guitar and he had andy newmark in there and earl slick and you know tony levin on bass and 
George Small on piano, and they, they, they didn't have an arrangement for it, and they, 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 they couldn't get the thing to sound any good. So Jack was like, I know a couple guys that eat, you know, live and breathe this stuff. They know they know what to do with a song like this, and that's that's why we got the call, you know. And the song with Yoko, it had this. It was like one, two, three. It was a pretty slow song, and I had we had this song called Loser, and I had this beat, this kind of thumpy four four on the floor beat that just was rock solid. So I, that's how I got the original call. Was I, I had the beat for the song Yoko was trying to do, yeah. And then our role expanded to be like song doctor for the John Lennon tune. You know, Lennon in the studio goes, played us a song on acoustic and goes, guys got any ideas for this? And we're like, yeah, give us 10 minutes, you know, we'll go out in the room here and run some stuff down and see what we can figure out. And pretty obvious to us, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, this, this should have a plastic Ono band, cold turkey type of feel or something, you know, the cool riff and all that stuff. So, yeah, it was like, it was right up our alley, we thought, you know, so it, it turned out well. Yeah, I mean that 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 just sounds like an incredible experience to to say the least. And I think you know, actually, I think some of those Yoko tracks on Double Fantasy are are underrated. I mean, it it's it, it draws an interesting contrast to the Lennon stuff, but I but I think in many ways it it still works. Well, you know, the band all the previous albums Yoko had ever done, they'd, they'd get a band in there like the Imagine album, and when they take a break, they'd go cut a Yoko track, and they'd all just be dicking around and stuff, you know. And I think that's one of the first records that. They really took her material and gave it some time and thought and, and made good recordings for it, not just, let's get some guys in there and, eh, hey, cut a track here, you guys, you know, because, I mean, you know, she needed some production and she got some production, you know, so, yeah, she sounded better, you know. So, uh, back to pre-Cheap Trick days, if you don't mind. Um, yeah. Sick Man of Europe, I actually just messaged Stuki, uh, Antoni, and said that we... Good, you got his number today. then. I was, I was going to ask you about that, yeah. <laughs> I got well. We're connected through Facebook. He said to make sure to to say hello, and he's actually done a couple of NAS gigs recently and and whatnot. But uh, he definitely wanted me to say hello. And you know, I was just listening to Mandicello yesterday. Um, his version. It's uh, it's up on the YouTube, and uh, he did a really good job with with that material. I, I wonder what your Recollection is with working with Stuky and kind of how it all fell apart and you know and how that it, all, to it all came it, it all came together in '69. Rick went over to England one summer and I uh, ran into Todd Rundgren at the Marquee there watching this a new band called Yes <laughs> and uh, and he said what's how's the band going and Todd was like we broke up Stuky and Mooney went to Texas and Rick's like got a phone number for Stuky so Rick got a number from Todd and then. Uh, a year later, a year after that, Rick's band Fuse kind of fell apart, and they, Rick and Tom were in his band. They had an album on Epic, and they sacked the, the singer and the drummer. And uh, he called, and Stuky and Mooney come up to Rockford, and probably the fall of 1970, and uh, moved to Rockford to get in a band with the Rick and Tom Peterson and and uh, Craig Myers, a guitar player, also in Fuse, and. So they, they they were Fuse, kind of Mach 2. They call themselves Fuse, and they played around the area for six months. And uh, I'd go to see them. I knew, I knew Rick from pre previous years. We were both in bands in high school and stuff. And uh, then, Mo then Mooney and Tom Peterson took off one day. They, they, they were living in, in a house Rick lived in downstairs. And 
Rick got all pissed off. He's like, yeah, they took all my tapes, too. They grabbed a bunch of open reel tapes and threw their stuff in a bag and got in a car and went to L.A. And so suddenly Rick needed a drummer, so I stepped in on drums, and Rick, Rick switched over to bass. And so it was me and Rick and Craig on guitar and Stooky. And then we played for three or four months, the summer of 71. And then uh, and that kind of fell apart. And Stooky went over to Europe, Rick went over to Europe, Tom went over to Europe. I went to work in my dad's business because I was waiting to get drafted. I was 1A. And then uh, the next spring, I didn't get drafted. Uh, Rick and Tom and Stuckey kind of, well, Rick and Stuckey ended up in Philadelphia by the summer of 1972 and put a band together to try and get a deal because Stuckey had a manager and he goes, I can get you a deal with Columbia Records. You're Stuckey, you're, you're famous. So uh, Tom came back from Europe and joined him. And like August, uh, September, I took a week off of work and drove out with Rick's brother-in-law to visit. And they had some guy drumming who was just lame. He was just real limp. I said, I can do better than that guy. So so I did a couple practices with him. Then I went and drove back home and packed up my bags and moved out to Philly, too, in September or so of 1970. This would be 72. And uh, we, had a, we started practicing in a rehearsal space. This band called Good God had they had an album on Atlantic Records, like kind of a jazz rock record, and uh, yeah, we just Rick was writing songs. He had a he had songs, and, and the, let me let me say go back a little. And when Rick came back from Europe at the end of '71 or like Christmas time, he had a bat. He was writing songs, and he had a batch of songs, and uh, he was trying. He wanted to work on them with a band, so me and a. a guitar player I knew that played bass, we'd go practice with Rick, and uh, we tried a couple different singers just, just learning these songs in the basement at, at his dad's music store. And it was stuff like, turned out to be like, you know, So Good to See You, and uh, I Ain't Got You, and some of the stuff that Sick Man of Europe ended up doing. And then uh, then we, moved to, we moved to Philly, and we had a couple different little bar bands we'd throw together for a weekend. And then, then everybody ended up in Philadelphia, kind of, me and Rick and Tom and Stuckey. So there we are living out there, and we're all working at this bar. Rick's a bartender, and Stuckey's a, well, he's working in the kitchen, and Tom's a waiter, and I was a DJ upstairs. And uh, that's when we were just, Rick was writing songs, and there were all these weird prog rock songs and stuff, you know, like nine minutes long, and they in the middle of going to some goofy three, four, five, four break or something, you know. And, of course, when we played bars, we noticed we would clear dance floors, you know, doing this stuff. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, some stuff like that that wasn't working too good. And uh, we played some bars in Jersey, you know, and we opened up. We had a, some manager that some mob guy was managing us for a few months. He's like, I'll make you guys famous, you know. And he had us opening for Foghat at some big bar by Fort Dix. And then, uh, who else, the Raspberries, you know, and bands like that. And we opened for Mandrill at a college in Delaware, you know, and stuff like that. And, and that kind of, then we moved back to Rockford. Rick's wife got pregnant, like in spring of 73. So we all moved back to Rockford. After a week in Rockford, Rick and Tom and the manager, Ken, decided they didn't, Stuckey wasn't quite good enough, so they fired Stuckey. And, of course, he was all pissed off because he got rid of this nice apartment in Philly and moved up to Rockford with his wife. And a week after he gets there, you know, oh, you're fired. And so Stuckey was moving back, and then Tom went, I don't like it here either, and went back with Stuckey and his wife. And uh, so there's me and Rick and Rockford, you know. So, yeah, that's when we started Cheap Trick. So that's kind of the Stuckey and Mooney story, you know. 
Wow, that's, that takes, I mean, us, that's up, that takes us up to June June seventy three. Yeah, you know. Yeah, there was a couple. I mean, there used to be this uh, bootleg that was kicking around for a while that was listed as a NAS bootleg, but I, it, I think twenty twenty hindsight. Yes, yeah, and I think they had a yeah, couple of those has, cuts on it. That has three songs that Rick cut, Rick and Stuky cut in the summer of seventy two with Hank and John Ransom and Cotton Ken from that band Good God. They went over to Sigma Sound and cut three demos one afternoon. So that's I Ain't Got You and Bean, I think it was, and I'm a surprise. Yeah, which is so good to see you. Yeah. Wow, so you and then there's a couple there's a, <laughs> there's, there's a couple live tracks of the move from the Fillmore doing a couple move tunes. That was a, I had a tape of that and I loaned it to a guy. That's where all that stuff came from. I loaned some tapes to a guy and then suddenly they ended up on a bootleg. <laughs> wow. And I had a I had an acetate from Stuky with Train Kept the Rolling and three other songs on it and some of that might have ended up on there too, I don't remember. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I know there's a version of Naz doing uh Train Kept a Rolling on a best of Naz compilation, but I assume that was the Naz. Yeah, they they demoed it, and Stuky, Stuky had an acetate of it back in the day and gave it to me. Because when, when, when Stuky was in Rockford and Fuse, I went to the record store one day, and there's Naz 3 sitting in the rack. And I was like, what's this? And I went and bought it and drove over to where Stuky and Rick lived. And I said, what's this? And Stuky's like, I don't know, never seen it before in my life. And we looked at the track list, and they're like, oh, this are all the leftover tapes. Yeah. Wow. wow, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. So uh, when you guys were hanging out, this album just shows up in the rack, and um, w did you assume that he was still with Naz at that point or something? No, no, I knew he was living in Rockford and Fuse. He'd been in Rockford for a few months, him and Mooney. But I, I, I just brought it over to where he was staying and went, Hey, Stooky, look, a new Naz record. And he was just like, where'd that come from? And I was like, eh, the record store, you know. <laughs> You know, they, they've been they've been out of NAS a year or or more, a couple of years by then. You know, so yeah, they didn't know what was going on with with the label. You know, were you a NAS fan before you met Stooky, or were you at least familiar with? Yeah, them? yeah, all, all the bands in Rockford had heard like "Open My Eyes" and "Kitty Boy." You know, some of the some of the songs were the rock songs we liked. You know, and and the rest of them were kind of artsy fartsy. You know, pop, a little too pop for me, but I like the rock stuff. Yeah. You know. And, and you had a guy after Stooky before Robin that appeared on your last solo album, if I'm correct. Yeah, Zeno, yeah. This guy, the guy Robin used to be in a band with, it was Robin's age, so that would be like class of 71. They went to high school together, and uh, we'd worked in bar dates. Like, you know, Rob, I was in a band with Robin in 1970 and 71, and uh, and I Zeno would show up at some dates and stuff. His name was Randy. And he'd show up at some dates and stuff like that, and... When we got together in June 73, Rick was like, you know any singers or bass players? And I was like, well, I know some singers, you know. And Rick was like, well, I know, I know some bass players. So he called a guy that played bass with us for six months. And I called Robin, and he was under contract to a bar in Wisconsin for two more summers. So uh, I called Zeno, and he was like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to junior college and learning to play classical guitar. And I was like, we need a singer. Come on, you know. And, okay. So he joined, and he was in, with the band for like 15 or 16 months. Yeah. Oh, wow. I didn't realize he was in that long. So, um, I, I mean, the tracks that he does on uh, Venezuela is, what, is how it's pronounced, I assume. It's, they sound really good. I mean, he still has a great voice. He's a good singer. He still works. He's a professional musician in Milwaukee. He still works. Uh, it was on a... You know, a band called Bad Boy in the seventies. They had a couple, two, three records on MCA, and uh, and uh, plays around the Midwest all the time. You know, he's, he's a familiar face. We're still friends. Yeah. 
Let's go. I mean, how did, how did things, so I assume when things ended with you and, uh, well, with Cheap Trick and, or whatever the group was at the time, Sick Man of Europe and Stooky, it was just kind of the end of it, huh? I mean, nobody really kept in touch after that point? Well, you know, we had phone numbers and stuff like that. I mean, the next time we saw Stooky after uh, Sick Man split, turned into Cheap Trick, uh, he was out visiting in Frisco in 77 on the Kiss Tour. His wife, family was living out there, and he was out visiting. And I remember he came over to a hotel, and we had a rough mix of in color. And you know, we played him the whole record. And at the very end, we there's a Sick Man of Europe tune, and he, he got kind of we got kind of misty eyed when that came on, you know, and yeah. reminisced and stuff. And and Mandicello, you know, was on our first record. Uh, when Rick wrote that for Sick Man, he wrote he actually wrote it before Sick Man of Europe. I I remember he wrote it when we were, we were doing a college date in McComb, Illinois, but because uh, he was working on it all afternoon in a, in a dorm room. But uh, he wrote it, and it had the part was kind of in a minor seventh. And then when we we re, when we cut it with Robin, the vocal we changed it to a major seventh, and it really sweetened the song up and changed the whole feel of the song and stuff like that. So uh, you know, Stooky. He heard the cheap trick version, and he, he knew it wasn't the, the sick man type of version he would have done with us and stuff. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure it was kind of gave Stooky a bit of a heartache when he heard these sick man Europe songs on cheap trick records. You know, I bet he was just kind of like, Ugh. you know, it had to hurt. Yeah, what if it was like a Pete Best situation, you know, where you think, geez, you know, this is the group that I used to be with that, that made it big. I mean, I assume Zeno maybe felt a little of that, little of that as well. Well, Zeno left the band. He left the band because he had an offer from a, a band doing better business, so the drummer from The Litter, a band called Straight Up up in Minneapolis. So he was working all the time. I don't think he had any regrets. And Suki, you know, it was four years between the time he left the band and, the, you know, the next time we saw him out in Frisco area, you know. So uh, so there you go. You know, that was, was probably kind of ancient history by then, but I really don't know, you know. That's just kind of how the music biz was, you know. So, uh, kind of shifting into the music biz and and cheap trick, if we could. Um, yeah. One of the things that that has always boggled my mind about cheap trick is the list of producers you've worked with. I mean, obviously that list includes Todd Rundgren, but I mean you got Jack Douglas, we mentioned Tom Worman, George Martin, who is by far the most famous of the lot. Um, yeah. Ted Templeman. Uh, Tony Platt, Richie Zito, and of course Roy Thomas Baker. You know, did Queen Night at the Opera? I mean, I, I'm I, I'm just blown away at the list of producers, and yet somehow Cheap Trick managed to maintain a, a certain sound, even though I feel like a lot of these producers sort of I, I don't want to use the term heavy handed. I don't know if that makes sense, but certainly each producer has a certain type of sound. I mean. How did you guys kind of manipulate working with all these big-name producers and yet still maintain your integrity, if that makes any sense? Well, uh, kind of, you, you did what you could. Uh, the, the, you know, before we signed with Epic, we we approached the label, and we had some label interest from Mercury and stuff like that, too. And uh, we approached Epic, and we said, look, you know, we, we want to sign with Epic to a CBS. You know, and we said... Uh, we 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 got a guy we want to produce the first record we want Jack Douglas to do it you know and we want we want plenty of tour support and we want a, we want a long deal you know we, we need we need tour support we don't need a bunch of money we're ready to go to work you know we we have a band we have a crew we have a truck we have sound we have lights we know we know how to play seven nights a week you know we got 60 original songs you know and so the label was like holy cow you know once they latched onto us and you know so we ended up getting a 10 or 12 album deal and 
and they loved the idea of having Jack Douglas do the first record. And, and uh, he came out and saw us. You know, we, we flew Jack out to see us, speaking of which. And uh, he now claims he just happened to be in Waukesha, Wisconsin, walking by a bar, you know. But uh, <laughs> we sent him a plane ticket. I mean, we have, I have the, the letters we mailed to him and stuff. But, yeah, we, we flew him out in March of 76 and, and picked him up at the airport in a limo and brought him over to walk the Sunset Bowl. And then that night he got to go to Milwaukee and see his sister and all that. That's why he said, yeah, I'll come on. I'll fly me to Milwaukee. That's great. My sister lives there. And uh, he came out and saw us and sat there with a stopwatch to make sure I wasn't speeding up, you know, and made notes. And we gave him the board tapes, all three sets, you know, and he took them back to New York. And, and uh, he called up Epic and said, yeah, these guys are the real thing, you know, and get, get them while they're hot and all that junk, you know. And so, yeah, I would. You know that, that's how it went with Jack, and then uh, and of course the first album didn't get any airplay because radio, radio came back and said the vocals are too down in the mix, it's too heavy, this and that, and uh, and uh, so the label went, you got to get a better, you got to get a producer to get you on the radio. We got this guy Tom Warman, so he was Warman the next three records, you know, because that was the, the label thought that was best, and we didn't mind, we didn't like in color, we thought that was kind of the mix was kind of muted or whatever, but. There you go. But you know, Heaven Tonight was great, and Dream Police that was that wasn't bad. Although by the end of Dream Police, you know, we were we were ready to get another producer. Whether and we hadn't had a hit at that time, so you know, whether the record was big or not, we were just like, well, next record we we can't work with this guy anymore. Three is enough, you know. So yeah, then then Budokan took off, and Dream Police came out and took off, you know, and all that. And then so we said we we want to get George Martin, and the label's like, you're fucking nuts, that old man. What for? You know, we're like. We're using him. We don't care if we got to pay him out of our own pocket, you know. And uh, and then things didn't get. Then we weren't getting along so good with with Epic, you know. And then we used Roy Baker, and then then we were ready to sue each other after that. They they were they were getting to be assholes, the label and shit like that. So yeah, that that's that leads us up to Todd. We said, you know, we want to do the next record with Todd, and they're like, really? And we're like, yeah, we're doing the next record with Todd, you know. And uh, was, we had that kind of relationship going. It was rapidly getting just. So yeah, that leads us to Todd. <laughs> you know. Well, you did now. So you did. I think one on one was right before um, next position, please, or is it the other way around? Yeah. That that no, that's right. We did that. But right before that was that EP that uh, found all the parts thing. They they put that out too. So there's another one in there, kind of stuck in the middle. But yeah, yeah. we did the one with Roy Baker, and uh, we had a couple hit singles off it, you know, but. And we did videos for it, you know, which was brand new back in those days. But uh, it didn't it didn't sell four million like Dream Police, and you know, and it didn't like Budokan. So yeah, the label was starting to get on our case by then. You know. Do you think any of that had to do with the departure of Tom Peterson? I mean, it almost felt like on some level. I mean, I remember as a as a kid at the time, it was like. You know, you got uh, Tom Peterson, who was, I mean, you, you guys, I don't want to put you in the same category as the Beatles as far as line of changes, but, I mean, to many fans, that's kind of the same thing. You think of the four guys, and John Brandt's a, gr a great bass player, and he seems like a good guy, and you had Pete Comita that kind of kind of filled a void there for a little while, but do you, think yeah. they, do you think Peterson left at kind of the wrong time and sort of screwed up any momentum that you had by the time well, All Shook Up came out? Yeah, well, of course it screwed up the momentum and all that, but... 
Tom didn't leave. We we asked him to leave. He was he'd married a German model, and uh, we were cutting all shook up. And after two weeks in Montserrat, he goes, "I got to go home." One morning, we go, "Why?" And he goes, "There's mud in the pool." And we're like, "There's mud in the pool?" And he goes, "Yeah." He bought a house, a big house in Hollywood after he married this person, and uh, there was mud in the pool, and she couldn't handle it. So he's like, "I got to go home." And we're like, well, the base isn't done yet. You know, <laughs> you still got overdubs. I gotta go home. So he leaves. He gets on the one plane off the island, you know, and go and leaves. So Rick does his base overdubs, and we're gonna finish this EP in New York and go to London and finish All Shook Up. And Tom doesn't show up for those either. So we recut Day Tripper without Tom. And in the studio, Rick plays bass, and we put the applause from the live track on because the live tape had flaws on it, and we had to recut the track. Then we go to London and finish the record without Tom, Rick, and uh, and we toured that summer and stuff like that. And uh, we did a tour. We did a tour in New Zealand in the winter of '79, and we. New Zealand, Australia, and we got to New Zealand, and Tom was coming the next day, and he comes the next day, and he goes, I almost didn't come down here, and we were like, what? You were going to let us fly down here, and you might not show up? We wanted to kill him, you know, and stuff, so that crap was going on, and I've never told this to anybody else before, so there's your scoop on this whole thing, but all that shit was going on, so we had a meeting in August, and we sacked him, you know, because when he, you know, we should have taken six months off and all gone and got our heads straight or whatever, you know. These days, people know what to do when this shit happens, but back then, you know, no, no one knew what to do, so... Yeah, we got Pete to fill in, you know, for the tour, but he was up a nutbag, so we sacked him and got got a real bass player, got John Brandt. We knew John from the bar days and stuff, but yeah, of course, it would have been better if Tom had never left, you know, would have felt a little bit better, we had, you know, the original chemistry, all, all that kind of junk, you know. So that's that's the deal with Tom, you know, that's kind of how that went down. Yeah, it's kind of a shame. I mean, I, I remember him coming out with an album with Dagmar, and I think that there was certainly, you know, fans kind of knew that there was an issue with with his wife and everything like that. But, you know, John John sort of inherited a weird situation, I suppose, but he but he did a great job. I mean, I I saw you guys with oh, John yeah. a few times, and I, I think, I don't know, he just seems like seems like a real likable guy, for lack of a better term. Oh, John, John's a great guy. He lives about a mile away here. Uh He's a real nice guy. We we've no, known each other now, you know, for 40 years, and he's he, he's a good guy. He's a good bass player, and uh, you know that kind of thing. But but he wasn't Tom, you know. So that that was the only difference, <laughs> you know. John wasn't Tom, you know, so. So yeah. so that I guess that leads us to to the next position, Please album. And I, I don't know. You probably haven't read Todd Rundgren's new autobiography, but he talks about that uh, recording session, and he mentions that. You know, in one of the more poignant parts of his book, that it, one of his close friends died, a, a guy named Randy, and I apologize for not remembering his last name, but he was pretty struck by that. Um, I don't know if you remember that during the recording session or if that had any kind of impact on it, but he, it was certainly a memory that, that he shared in his book. Well, he didn't share it with us because we never heard a word about I'm not, I would I have no clue of what you're talking about. But uh, when we were working with Todd, he was doing programming for Sony for beta for the beta tapes, beta hi-fi and stuff. And uh, so we'd work from noon to six every day, and then he'd go up to the house and work till 10 or 12 on programming stuff and, and stuff like that. And, you know, so that, that's kind of how the work day went, you know. And we got we got along normally and all that. We went into town on weekends and stuff and had a few drinks and stuff. And, uh, you know, 
Todd, Todd was Todd. He was perfectly normal, and he wasn't like he didn't. We didn't know anybody died. <laughs> Nothing like that. So uh, you know. So where where would you rank him in terms of you know producers that you worked with? I mean, I I, I mean, so you you got the you got the A list there, and I'm just curious if there was anything that kind of stood out about his style, either good, bad, or indifferent. Well, you know, the, the good was he was our age. Our points of reference were you know the same, so we we communicated great. We admired him as a musician and a producer. Uh, part of the deal was for the record we we do one of his songs and. He, on a Saturday, he goes, I'm working on this song. And at the end of the day, he comes in and goes, Here, here's the instrumental track of the song I'm working on. And Sunday, he goes, I'm going to do the vocals. And he comes in Sunday night and goes, here's the song. And and he had, he had a finished track done. And we're like, okay. So we went in Monday and recut the whole thing, you know. But, so, I mean, that's how fast Todd was. He wrote a killer song, and we cut it and did it in 72 hours, you know, type of thing. And he was a swell guy. And, uh you know, he, he was a really nice guy, and all the he had a posse of women that were working for him, and were all in love with him, and blah blah blah, all that other stuff. But uh, they were, you know, they were all fun people to hang out with, and things like that. And you know, we, we thought we thought the record was, you know, I, that, that's all the good stuff. The the, the stuff I, I looks like might have been, we could have done better on looking back on it was they used the Rockman on every song, the guitar effect. Him and Rick loved this brand new toy that Tom Scholz had invented, you know. And so it's on every track, so that kind of dates the record a little. The, the effects, you know. And like any 80s album, you know, usually it's the drums that date the record. They all sound like cannons and bombs going off, but Todd kept the drums nice and flat and normal, you know. And, uh, his record, you know, today still sounds great. And as a producer, I rank him right up there with with George Martin and you know people like that. I mean, our, our best producers, he's one of them for sure. And stuff. And uh, we we cut 15 songs with him, you know, in about two and a half, three weeks. And CBS sent one of their executives up there in a limo to hear the songs. And the guy showed up like at one in the afternoon. You know, two or three hour drive from New York, and at first we play them all. We play them all fifteen songs, and at the end of the tape, there's this Yardbirds medley I, I cut in the evening with the engineer. He, we went in, and I said, "Yeah, we should do it. I want to do a Yardbirds medley like David Johansson did an Animals medley or something." So we went in, and on, on, you know, after when Todd would be working in his A-frame up the hill, and we cut a Yardbirds medley, four four songs, four minutes, you know, and. Uh, that comes on, and the guy from CBS goes, that's the single, that's the best song in the album. And we're like, that ain't on the album. That's just something Bunny did for the hell of it, you know. And uh, so then they're like, we're not going to put the record out. We got a couple more songs you want to do. And Todd called, Todd called the label up and told them they were fucked. He, he got on their case. And uh, we didn't know what to do. And management was like, look at the ready to shut you guys down. And Todd stood up to the label. We, we didn't dare stand up to the label at that time, to my dismay now. But uh, so yeah, we we cut two songs to add to the record in Chicago. Todd wouldn't. He's got. I got. I want nothing to do with that shit. I did the record. I got paid to do. Blah, and so and we called. We called Ian Taylor up, who was Roy Baker's engineer, and used him. Cut two more tracks to put on the record with him. But then the album came out, of course, and the, the single was not the was one of the songs the record label picked, and that died. The Motors tune, "Dancing the Night Away," and that went in the toilet and. Then suddenly we're doing a video for I Can't Take It two months after the record's out and playing catch up and then that you know, that then the record was dead by then, you know. So 
you know, the, the label kind of lost faith in us and didn't buy, didn't, they didn't really promote us the next couple, two, three records, starting with that record. And it's a shame, you know, because looking back on it, you hear the remastered, reissued version with, a, with the extra tracks on it. It's fucking great, I think, you know. Yeah, it really is a great album. I, and, I, and, you know, it's interesting because, like, uh, in the Todd fan community, so to speak, I guess for lack of a better term, everybody's always wondered if there was a track of Heaven Falling with Todd's vocals on it, because Robin sounds just like Todd on that track, and it's yeah, actually... I got, a, I, got a, I got a cassette somewhere of, the, of, the, of Todd's demo of the track. It sounds fucking great. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you could ever share that, uh, it would. it's literally like the holy grail of people that love Next Position, please, so... <laughs> First thing I'd have to do is find it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. And yeah. I, I know what room it's in, but uh, I don't know what box it's in. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because that's it, it's weird because a lot of stuff, you know, a lot of Todd's demos have leaked because he's a, a cult artist and that kind of stuff yeah. uh, kicks around. But um, but you know, you also touched on I can't take it. I mean, that's that to me was a that's a great song. I mean, it just it's just yeah. a well written song, and I think with the right promotional push, it certainly would have done better than. Dancing the night yeah. away. Yeah, we thought that was an obvious first choice for single, you know, too. Yeah. Plus, Todd's on lead, you know, on 3D, too. Him and Rick have a little guitar battle in the middle there. And uh, on that 6 8 part in the middle of side two, cut one. Yeah. You know, he played, I think he played guitar on that. Maybe he might be on guitar on uh, Heaven's Fallen, too, probably, I'd imagine. Yeah, and I think it's, is it Invaders of the Heart where you do the whole, you know, never ending song and everything like that at the end of it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we were just, we were recording and we knew that was probably going to be the last song on the record. So, yeah, Todd left all that the dopey stuff in the intro and the the extra endings and stuff, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that album was a lot of fun. So I guess if we could, you know, I've, I've taken up a ton of your time, so I've, I'll try not to take up too much more. And um, But thank you again, man. This is such an honor, such a pleasure. I've been a Cheap Trick fan for a long, long time. You guys were the second concert I ever saw in my life in Rochester in 1979 on the Dream Police Tour. Mm. But, uh, I mean, you guys, I, I, I think you've been quoted as saying it in, uh, certainly around the time of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. I mean, you guys... That's for special, man. It was it was a very special four piece lineup, and I don't mean to take anything away from John Brandt because I think you guys did a lot of great stuff with with John. But you know, John had pretty big shoes to fill. I mean, Tom's a very unique bass player, and on some levels, he's a very unique vocalist. I mean, I know what I want is one of my favorite Cheap Trick tunes. I mean, he's certainly not as oh, yeah. good of a singer as uh, Robin, but it gave a nice sort of contrast to Robin, especially in concert. It did, you know. But I remember when Tom left the band. We did. A, we did. I know what I want with Robin singing. I remember we did it like in Portugal and stuff like that, and, and it was in a completely different key because we had to change keys when Tom sang it. But uh, yeah, it was, it was. You should hear when Robin sings it. <laughs> it's, it's more like a Velvet Underground thing, kind of. It's uh, the songs in a different key, so the chords are a lot of feedback. And it's, I can't explain it really, but yeah, Tom. You know, he did stuff like heroin. I mean, you know, waiting for the man. I remember. Zeno sang that, and then Robin sang it a few times, and then Tom took over singing it, you know, back in our bar days, and uh, Tom put his stamp on it, you know. He's, he's a very unique singer. Yeah. And I remember when when you guys, and, and this just sort of popped in my head out of nowhere, you used to do you used to do Huda King where, like, a whole bunch of people would just pop up on stage, like all the promoters yeah. and road crew and all that stuff. How long did you all guys kind of do an F for? It was all the contest winners. Uh, 
you know, they'd have a radio contest. Get on stage with Cheap Trick, you know, da, 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 da. if you got a ticket, you know, enter this. And, but, uh, and we had, we'd have two extra drummers for the encore, a couple guys from the lighting crew. We got them some drum sets, and they'd come out, and we'd do three songs with three drummers, you know, the drum choir, as they called it. And, uh, but yeah, that was, it was a nice way to end the show, you know, get, get, get a bunch of fans up there and have them put on some bunny masks and run around the stage. Yeah, yeah I, I just, I mean, All Shook Up, I mean, I know we've talked about Next Position, Please, but All Shook Up is, that's a hell of an album, man. I mean, that thing is, I can't play you that know, softly, you know? <laughs> it's an old who, album. Who, who the King, you know, Who the King wasn't supposed to be on there. That was supposed to be a B-side, and one of Tom's tunes, Machines Make Money, was supposed to be on there, and uh, stuff like that. So, yeah, we, we had to kind of do a little shuffle on side two there when, after Tom went home to get the mud out of his pool and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, it, it's funny. I mean, you, you know, I guess now it's, it's what, 20, 30 years later, you start to hear about a lot of these albums where you think that the band is playing. Like, I mean, Van Halen talked about how many times uh, Eddie had to play bass instead of Michael Anthony, and I guess that stuff wasn't all that uncommon in the... Back in the day, but I don't know. One of the things that sort of struck me is you, you mentioned that when Jack Douglas came out, he he made sure that you could keep time. And I, I don't think a lot of people. My son's a drummer, so a lot of people always say that about him that he can you know quote unquote keep time. And I guess that's I guess that's not all that common with drummers. <laughs> Straight. Well, you know, 1976. You know, before drum machines, all he had was metronomes, and guys didn't like playing along with those. So yeah. The drummer, you know, was you had, kind of had to have perfect time, or you really had no business being a professional drummer. So, you know, it was different times back then. Yeah. Who, who was the Who was the person that inspired you to to play drums? And I mean, it's kind of at the the, the top of your list. Well, you know, it's it Ringo and Charlie Watts and Dave Clark, and then about three years later, it's Mitch Mitchell and Ginger Baker and Keith Moon. You know, kind of. That's the story of my teen years, right there. Yeah. So, I mean, where do you where do you categorize yourself right now? I mean, I, I mean, as a fan, obviously, I I rank you really high, man. I mean, I I still remember the first time I heard the intro to "Ain't That a Shame" on At Budokan. I mean, that drum work is just it makes the makes the song. I mean, that's that's. I think even Fats Domino said that that's his favorite version of the song, other than his own. Well, you know we. The, the intro of that song, I mean, I, I talk about it in drum clinics, you know, there's like one lick from a Ringo song, one lick from a Who song, there's one lick from a Move song by Bev Devin, there's, uh, you know, I can I can tell you where all the licks come from, you know, because that's how I learned to drum, you know, I was listening to other drummers and, and stuff like that, and, uh, you know, it's so kind of goes like that, but yeah, if I was going to compare my style to another drummer, of course, I'm, I'm left-handed leading, playing on a right-handed kit, and leading left hand with my drum roll, so Ringo does that too. So a lot of stuff can sound Ringo-y or Charlie Wattsy, maybe you know, because I prefer to play time as play a drum lick every verse and stuff like that, and and that's always been kind of my way of drumming is serve the song, you know, and serve and don't get in the singer's way and stuff like that, and and then. Then there's guys that call me up, like guys like, I remember 30 years after, you know, back in the 90s, you know, I ran into Dave Maddox one day, and he's like, I love your drumming. I love your philosophy. Play for the song. Don't get in the way of the singer. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not the only guy out there, you know, and stuff like that. So, yeah, you know, it's kind of neat. And, and that's, you know, that's the kind of drummer I am. I'm not a Mr. Flash, you know, that's for sure, you know. 
No, but certainly a very important part of a cheap trick. And I'm I, I'm not a drummer by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm a, I'm a listener, so I certainly uh, have enjoyed everything you've played over the years. I'm glad you like the stuff, Tom. Well, I appreciate it, man. And and you know, I'll wrap up by just saying, honestly, this is really quite an honor. I know you don't do interviews anymore, and um, I I just I don't know. I'm very tickled to to finally get a chance to to chat with you, and I've listen to your stuff since I'm 53, so I've listened to you since I've been about 14, so it's been a long time. It's very cool to chat mm-hmm. with you. Well, if you need anything fact-checked or anything, let me know. Well, I'll tell you, if you can find that uh, that tape of Heaven's Falling with Todd on vocals, you will be probably the most popular person in the Todd Rundgren fan community of all time. So, <laughs> if, I, if, I ever fi- if I ever find it, I'll get a hold of you and let you know. <laughs> <laughs> right, that would be fantastic. It'd be cool if you cool. and you and Stuky got together to play a song. He um he's done some Rungren Radio is not just a an internet radio thing. It uh you know, they do events and everything too and Stuky's done a couple events with them and he's he's gotten out and sang some songs and man, if you showed up it might just be fun to get you guys back together playing a couple of tunes, especially since you just did some stuff with Zeno not too long ago. Well, if I'm ever anywhere near Philly, of course, I will be getting Stuky's number out of my phone book and bugging him. <laughs> <laughs> well, who knows? Maybe he'll uh, maybe he'll get the message, though. So that would be very cool to see you guys back together. But, again, thank you very much for all the great music over the years, and uh, thank you so much for uh, for checking this one off my bucket list, man. I appreciate the interview. Hey, send me a link when this thing gets put together. Okay, absolutely well. Great. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks, buddy. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, how about that? That's amazing, Tom. Yeah. Good job. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of fun, as you can tell. I uh, I definitely got a little fanboy in, in parts, but that was just a cool interview. I mean, the guy was very sad. Just like I said, very conversational. And, um, you know, if either one of those two things happen, if we can somehow hear that heaven's falling tape, which I think would be uh, incredible, and if that comes out of this, I mean, that would be that would be awesome. And then secondarily, if we got him to show up at a Rungren radio event and play with Stuky, and you got Stuky on Friday night, man. So, yeah. Stranger things have happened. Remember, you got, <laughs> you got uh, Todd to play with Moogie. So, who knows? This could be another great reunion story for Rungren radio. Well, you know, sometimes the planets align, and it uh, sounds like he'd like to do it, so... We're going to put that in the in the box for suggestions for future uh, events and stuff. So, wow! I mean, I'm just blown away. What a fantastic interview! And he seemed so easy. I, I will say the man's got one of the best memories I've I've ever witnessed. What did he say? He is 68 or something? Yeah, 68. I mean, a lot of these guys, you know, Todd's contemporaries and everybody, they're all, you know, late 60s, early 70s. I think Chasm's probably one of the younger guys, and I think he's in his mid-60s right now. I mean, he he was like, could knew exactly, well, that was, you know, 1971, May. <laughs> you know, it's just crazy. Oh, I, I'm blown away. But listen, I want to uh, tell our listeners that uh, – if you'd like to call in and pick Tom's brain, because you know there was more to this interview that, you know, either didn't sound good or whatever and got edited out, uh, feel free to call in. Our call-in number is area code 646-716-9262. And if you'd like to 
ask Tom anything, ask me anything, whatever, uh, make sure that you press 1. Otherwise, we'll think you're just calling in to listen. Okay, um, so uh, it was interesting how aggressive and how assertive to me it sounded that Cheap Trick was, you know, asking for George Martin. And did that did that surprise you at all? Because I know you've interviewed a ton of people, Tom. Um, it just they sure didn't let other people run their career. You know, they they went out and grabbed it, right? Yeah, well, you know, it's like the one part where he talked about how they were sort of, you know, they were they were they were almost you know, they were good to go. So I, I think a lot of bands back in those days, you know, they they'd have a few good songs and they'd have to sort of coax some other things out of them and get the producer to work with them and they could be kind of a pain in the ass. But it sounded like Cheap Trick was, it's like he said, they had sixty songs. They they had, they knew how to tour. You know, so they, they were kind of like good to go by the time they started working with the record label. And, yeah, I mean, to put the list of producers that they were working with, that's it's insane. I mean, Roy Thomas Baker did Queen Night at the Opera was his big one. You know, Jack Douglas obviously did Double Fantasy, worked with Aerosmith. Ted Templeman did Doobie Brothers, Van Halen. You know, we know what Todd's done, so we don't have to go there. And, I, I mean, it it's the list of producers that they work with, if I ever – had the time and wherewithal to write a book sort of along the lines of Paul Myers did with Todd's Todd's productions. I would love to write a book about each one of the Cheap Trick albums and how each producer approached the albums because it really is kind of the A-list of, of producers. It really is. Um, I, I wasn't familiar with all those names, but the ones that I was familiar with, I was like, Wow, they're not messing around. They went for for big names, and including our our favorite Todd Rundgren. Yeah, how crazy is it of a record label, even in nineteen, I don't know, I think it was seventy eight, seventy nine, to say they don't want to work with they they couldn't believe they wanted to work with that old man George Martin. I mean, it's George Martin. Like, why why wouldn't a record label just completely go? Oh yeah, by the way, Cheap Trick's new album is produced by George Martin because. I, I would think even at that time, I mean, his name just had to have so much credibility. Is, I mean, he's arguably the greatest, if not the most famous, uh, record producer of all time. And I, I just, I, it's funny to hear that behind the scenes that, you know, the record labels would have those types of strong opinions about, like you said, who they worked with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, they're they're definitely a band. I mean, and I am a little biased because they are in my top three favorite bands, but they are a band that had their shit together, so to speak, and they knew it, and uh, it wasn't false bravado or anything like that. They they said what they wanted, and uh, it sounds like almost every time they got it. So, case in point... That band is still, I call them pretty much the hardest working band in in show business. I, I still think of them, though, they sound a little rough like a bar band, which I like that. But look at them now, they're still playing to this day. Yeah, there's a certain authenticity in Cheap Trick sound, which is what, uh, what really made Utopia, the four-piece lineup, appeal to me as well. I mean, it sounds like four dudes playing, you know, they're just, they're they're a band. It doesn't sound like a bunch of hired musicians that are, you know, going out there or whatever. I mean, those are those are the kinds of acts that I really, really love. I mean, it's just that they have a certain energy, they have a certain synergy, you know, whatever you want to call it. 
And uh, Cheap Trick has always kind of had that. I, I think they, you know, they definitely lost a little bit there when Tom Peterson was gone for a few years. And I, and I don't think they're the same band right now without uh, Bunny Carlos. I mean, he was a really, really important part of their sound. And, you know, people always it, it's kind of like, I don't know, this is probably overblown, but it'd be like Rush trying to go out with another drummer. You know, it it just wouldn't be the same. I'm sure they could find somebody that could, could sound like Neil Peart, but why, you know? And um, I know Cheap Trick, they, they probably got bills to pay, and people still love going to their shows and everything like that. But to me, I, I just feel like they, they really lost a step when they lost Bunny. Uh, yeah, I I agree. Although, um, who's playing for them now? Is it Rick's son? Yeah, it was, it, his name's Dax. You know, it's funny when uh, Bunny was talking about Rick having to move back to Rockford because his wife was pregnant. I almost wondered if that was <laughs> Dax, you know. And I, I did, the only reason I didn't ask is I was like, uh, you know, I don't really want to bring up the subject of, oh, was that Dax, the guy that replaced you, you know? <laughs> oh, so true. I sort of true, very true. I sort of avoided that question. But, you know, I said it. it's uh, – yeah, I mean, he, you know, you can't take anything away from the guy. I mean, the work, the work that he's done and everything like that, his, his importance in, in that band. I mean, it, it's, you know, they did a lot of, they did a lot of great stuff, man. I, I still listen to a lot of Cheap Trick on a, on a regular basis. I, I'm sorry, I misunderstood you. Uh, what did you say you did on a regular basis? I still listen to a lot of Cheap Trick. I mean, I still, you know, I listen to, to vinyl records, so they're, you know, I, I'm always putting on either at Budokan or All Shook Up, and of course you know, next position, please. And, you know, I, I listen to a lot of cheap trick. I, they're a great band. I, I just don't, they they have a lot of material and they're, I never really get sick of them. You know, there's the, that. I can't really say that about every band. You know, I'm, I probably could die uh, in a hundred years and never listen to Leonard Skinner again. Not that I don't appreciate what they've done, but you know, I just don't think their body of work is, is something like you said, like a band like cheap trick or Todd Rundgren that really just has a this hugely diverse catalog. Correct. I know. I know. Um, what was your favorite little takeaway from from your interview with Bunny? Well, there was a couple of aha moments. So I actually just recently bought a newer copy of The Best of Naz, and I'd had it on record, but I found a copy that was that was was mint. So I was like, oh, you know, pick this up at a record store. And it has those two songs on it, Train Kept Rolling and, um, oh, man, I, I feel like you know, I just listened to it like two days ago. But there's another one that there were two previously unreleased Naz tunes. And here Bunny say like, oh, yeah, I had these acetates of these Naz demos. And, you know, I gave them to somebody, and I don't even know whatever happened to them. It's like, oh, well, that's where those acetates came from for those two unreleased songs on the best of Naz. So I thought that was kind of cool. And then talking about that uh, 2020 hindsight bootleg, like he knew all about that, which I thought was kind of cool because you didn't think that a lot of these guys paid attention to bootleg records. But that those were songs I was listening to in, you know, the early 80s and stuff like that. So it was cool to hear the origins of those. But just like, I don't know, that Heaven's Falling story was was pretty cool. Uh, 72 hours, he throws together this fucking killer tune, you know. <laughs> 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 you know, <laughs> oh, the guy definitely has a, a way with words for sure. Um, oh man, I hope he can find that cassette tape. Oh, that sounded weird to hear him say, "I have it on cassette." I was like, "Oh, ooh, throwback!" But uh, oh man, if he can find that, 
and get that to you. Ah, you're right. He is going to be such a hero in the Todd world for sure. Yeah, and I never really understood why Todd didn't revisit that song and maybe record it himself at some point. You know, like, you know, he did like Feel It was on the Tubes Love Bomb. Then he later, you know, did his version on Nearly Human. And I always thought, man, Heaven's Falling is such a great, great song. And a lot of people compare it to Cry Baby and say it's very similar in structure, but. I, I've always wanted to hear Todd's vocals on that because it just it just it's it's a Todd tune, man. I mean, it's it's just like a ball to the wall. Well, it, it actually more or less reminds me of a Utopia song. I mean, that would be a band, that would be a song I could hear on like P.O.B. You know? Yeah, um, I hear that too. Sort of that yeah. Princess game feel, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 you know, of course, you know, uh, if I'm listening to Cheap Trick uh, in my house, all in private. I may catch myself singing along. And <laughs> Heaven's Falling is a difficult song to sing. And I would I I would really love to hear how Todd sang it if it was similar at all to the way Robin does. You know, we'll hopefully find out. So you lean on him, okay? <laughs> I know we've known each other for almost 3 days now, so we're best of friends. <laughs> you know, no, he may even listen to this because, you know, he wanted me to send him the link. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Heaven's Falling, I mean, just how it starts out in that sort of low octave and then just, you know, hits the hits the screamer section. Like, you know, we've heard Todd doing other songs like, you know, Liar from Liars and stuff like that. It's just a, I don't know. It, it, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a tough song for us to sing, but, man, it's like, oh, it's such a it's such a fist pumping song. I I I loved it from the second I heard it, and I can't take it. You know, that's another song from that album that I've always been a huge fan of as well. I feel like that one, if it had gotten the right airplay, it probably it could have done all right, you know? Uh, I kind of remember that it did, but, I, you know, I'm not looking at any billboard ch- chart or anything like that. But, um, you know, I'm biased. I, I admit it. I'm a fan. I can't help myself. Uh <laughs> My favorite part of the interview, although, I mean, it's hard to choose, but when he was talking about the mud in the pool, for goodness sake. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there was about uh, there was about 10 minutes that I edited out because he kind of, he went on a bit of a rant uh, about the period of time, and you could still see that there was some frustration over that period. And then, you know, he just kind of said, uh, you know, He's like, you don't have to. He, this is what he said to me. He said, you don't have to edit it out if you don't want. I don't care. You can leave it in. He said, but uh, <laughs> you know, use your best judgment. He's like, I'm sure. I'm sure Tom Peterson's not going to want to hear me talking crap about him thirty years after the fact. I mean, it's all water under the bridge. I was like, all right, you know, no big deal. And I, I mean, I did some other edits and stuff. And I've, I don't know. That's that's pretty typical. I mean, guys, especially when they're in an interview and they start to get comfortable and they share certain things with you, it it. it it feels a little bit more individual and private, so I'll I'll definitely cut some of those things out as a as a matter of respect. And and it, I, you know, I guess it's more like do unto others as you would have done unto you. Like if I went on a rant about my ex-wife, and you know, um, I'd probably be like, oh, maybe you should cut that part out, you know, because <laughs> it's been 15 years, you know, we're we're over it. So yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm telling you, uh, you did such a fine job, and uh, this was a, a personal thrill for me to get to finally hear out of 
out of his mouth some of his great stories. He's a really good storyteller if you can just latch onto his accent. But, you know, if he's listening to this, he's probably hearing me and he's saying, what's she saying? <laughs> so, I don't know. <laughs> good job. Because I messaged him. Um, I messaged him. I said, you know, I, I'd be willing to send you a copy of the interview before I send it off for broadcast if you want to listen to it just to make sure everything's cool. And I've done that for other artists before I've run feature pieces and everything. Um, so he's like, oh, you know, that's fine. Just send me the link when it's up. And I and I messaged him back. I said, dude, you are like an incredible storyteller. Like you, you really should hook up with somebody and write a book. You know, I mean, I don't know. Maybe you'll maybe you'll tap into me and I can. I've always wanted to write a rock biography. I mean, I always envisioned someday being able to do something with uh, Vince Wellnick because Vince was a guy that I met and I just felt like he had such a tragic ending and really has never gotten the kind of recognition that he deserved for his great body work with, you know, the tubes and, and the dead and that later stuff that he did with Prairie was, was pretty incredible too. But, uh, and Todd, you know, but yeah, I said, uh, Bunny, I mean, he's still with us and man, he's got some great stories. He said, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I could listen to that guy talk all day. <laughs> but he's just, he's just, he's awesome. I, yeah, I think I could too. My goodness, and he, ooh, I think he could. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So you you sent in a, a song uh, called Menda Menda. I'm probably ugh, I got it wrong. Is it Mendicello? Yeah, it's Mendicello, and the I I want to say that I'm pretty sure that that the Cheap Trick version appears on their debut album. There's probably someone in the chat room that knows or or whatever, but. Um, and, and she performed it intermittently. And if I remember correctly, and it might even be in the intro of this particular song that Amanda cello is a type of instrument and that's, it's featured in the recording. Um, the band is not particularly tight on this version, but I was really struck by Stukey's vocals. I thought Stukey's vocals were incredible. And Doug was asking me that they were introducing the band and I'm pretty sure it's, Buddy Carlos, then Tom Peterson, um, and Rick Nielsen, and then I think there's one other guy. I think they introduced all of them, but but Doug was like, man, that guy that's introduced them sounds like Todd Rundgren. And I think it kind of does. So I don't know. Maybe we'll uh, maybe we'll figure that mystery out. But it may it may be the fact that it's that it's in Philadelphia, and, and again, it's the accent that may be a little more uh, recognizable. So I don't I don't really pick up a Philly accent from Todd, but I think maybe back when he was living in Philly, it was a little more pronounced. Maybe, yeah. Okay, so uh, here's what we're going to do. We're going to play this song, and I'm going to say goodnight to you, Tom, so that you can just sit back and relax, and uh, I I won't be picking your brain. And uh, then we'll probably uh, maybe play the healing suite one more time because our world definitely needs a healer. And um, I I have no other words but to say huge thanks. Oh, actually, thanks goes back to you and Doug. I mean, I you know it, it's as a fan, and I'm sure I speak for a lot of people that you guys really have just made being a Todd Rundgren fan uh, fun again. You know, I mean, it was it was back when you know we were all starting to get a little bit older and people feel a little disconnected. I mean, you've really created quite a community and. Uh, just my little part of it, it, I just feel so honored. I love seeing you at events and get, giving each other a big hug. And, you know, when all this uh, coronavirus thing is passed and we're able to sh- 
sure a big hug again. That'll be a happy day. But, you know, to you and Doug, please stay safe. And, and thank you guys for all you do. And I'm sure we'll, I'm sure we'll be back on air again soon. And if you ever need me, I'm just a quick phone call away. This is a true labor of love. I really do love doing it. Well, thank you. And uh, just a little plug, everybody, Tom Jennings uh, does Turntable Tuesdays on his Facebook page. And he's also a huge comedian in the world. So uh, check him (laughs) out. It's Tom, T-H-O-M, Jennings. Anyway, thanks again. And uh, y'all just sit back and listen to some music, okay? This is Sick Man of Europe performing Mandicello. Uh, all of you who remember a group called the Naz probably want to forget them, but uh, we have uh, the lead singer from the Naz, uh, Stuki, along with some. Yeah, come on, let's hear it for Stuki. And he got himself together with a couple of Chicago musicians, one of them right here who never quits, Rick Nielsen, who does all the writing for the group, and. and a close musician friend of his, Tommy Peterson, who came all the way from Chicago. And the drummer friend, Bunny, who I hear his name is. And a couple of specially selected, I guess one specially selected, there you go, Steve, very good. Very specially selected sideman who's going to be on piano tonight. Uh, Atlantic Records keeps me from mentioning his name. But... They call themselves the Sick Man of Europe, and they're going to come out right now. Let's hear it for them. Sick Man of Europe.
this is Mary Lou Arnold, Todd's longtime tour and production manager, and you are listening to Rundgren's Radio.
Hi everybody, this is Todd Rundgren and you're listening to RundgrenRadio.com. My people, 